Good morning, everyone. So good to have you all here. Uh, before I start uh, with the message, the passage I want to look at today, uh, I just wanted to talk just a moment about what happened yesterday at, at the Allen Outlet Mall. Um, I was just speaking with one of our, our, our people who was, uh, attends the Spanish language service. He was there and witnessed uh, the shooting. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, we see all too often on the news. And uh, I want to encourage us as a church to not get distracted, to not turn this into a political fight, something to argue about how the government's gonna fix it. Guys, there are people who are so broken, so full of anguish and hatred that they would like to die by killing as many people as they can. That's the problem and the answer is the gospel. Uh, let's pray that God will give his church a powerful witness and that hearts will be changed and that these things will stop happening with such frequency because people don't want to do these things. Um, so let's not let our hearts be distracted by people who use this for political platforms and to get votes and uh, let's focus on the real issue that human hearts are broken and God's given us the answer and it's our job to deal with this, not the government. Uh, so let's, let's commit ourselves to this kingdom and to this message that has the power to transform everything. Okay, I would say I'm done preaching, but I'm just getting started. We're still in 2 Corinthians. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. And as we work our way through, I think it will become clear that that is the heart of the message in this whole letter. Um, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Uh, there was a period in our lives that was kind of rough when we moved here from the Canary Islands in 2001 and uh, I came here, we, we moved here so that I could attend Southwestern Seminary. Um, I was studying full-time so Ellie was looking for work and she found a job. Uh, all we had, I mean we came with what we could fit in suitcases and sold everything we had and used what little we had to buy a I forget what year it was, but it was a piece of junk, Toyota Camry, um, that had obviously had an engine fire. You just had to look at the hood to know that. And uh, I remember Ellie had this job in Dallas. We were living in Fort Worth. She would drive out to Dallas every day, and she had to stop halfway to put water in the radiator because it leaked. Um, but that job ended, uh, it was kind of contract type work and uh, suddenly she's uh, without work. I'm studying full time, she got her final paycheck end of December. And we used that final paycheck to pay for my classes for the spring semester. As a family we did not receive another paycheck until Ellie found a job in May. Uh, during this time, my parents allowed us to live in a home that they owned uh, and not pay rent for those months. Uh, we got on food stamps. The seminary had a, every Tuesday had a, 
a food thing. You could go and get food, and we managed to survive. But one of the really hard things in this whole time, we didn't go hungry. We weren't out on the street. One of the hard things was going to the grocery store with your food stamps and your kids at being at the checkout where they have all this toys and candies and all this uh, junk that is very attractive to children and your children asking for things and having to say no. Uh, we can't get that. Uh, to children who at that age don't understand why you're being so mean. You used to get me this kind of stuff. What's going on? Uh, that's a little bit, I think, similar to the situation Paul is facing with the church in Corinth because he's had to be the bad guy. Uh, and he's trying to explain to them what's really going on and help them understand that what's been going on is not evidence of his lack of love, but just the opposite. I've titled the message, uh, For Your Joy, Christian Service. And we're in 2 Corinthians, we're in chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 23 and move all the way through chapter 2, verse 13. Before I start reading the passage, I think it's helpful to kind of recap and try to reconstruct what's gone on here. Um, it's very clear from 2 Corinthians that there's some big issue that's been happening. And part of the problem is that Paul knows that his readers are fully aware of all the details of that situation, so he doesn't go into explaining these details for us in 2 Corinthians. He talks about it like his readers already know what he's talking about. We aren't those readers, so we don't know what he's talking about. And we have to try to piece together from the information he gives us in 2 Corinthians what might have been going on here. Now there are two passages in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about, I am about to come and visit you for the third time. Now in the book of Acts, we only have Paul visiting twice. He's there on his uh, second missionary journey where he plants the church and he spends 18 months there and uh, he is there at, at the end of his third missionary journey before he goes to Jerusalem and ends up being arrested. So in the book of Acts, there's no third visit. So what's going on here? Well, it appears that between the first time Paul was there and planted the church and the time we have described in Acts where he goes there and gathers the offering for the saints and goes to Jerusalem, somewhere in between there he visited the church a second time. And that seems to be what's in the background of him writing 2 Corinthians. It seems to have happened after he wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote both of these letters in his third missionary journey. The first letter, 1 Corinthians, he wrote while he was in Ephesus doing ministry. And we've read that letter. I preached through it, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of problems and things that were going on in the life of the church. So he sends that letter off. Um, but apparently in between that and him getting there for the second time, uh, he's had another visit. What happens in that visit? Well, from what we can reconstruct, and a lot of the details come from the passage we're looking at today, it seems that Paul made another visit in the middle there. He must have sailed straight across from Ephesus, made a quick visit to Corinth, and apparently there was some kind of an issue in the church with somebody involved in some kind of sin. Paul never explicitly says what kind of sin it was, but just something that needed to be confronted. And part of the issue appears to have been that maybe the church didn't quite initially understand that this was a problem. 
some people think, oh, well, then that's the 1 Corinthians 5 issue of the guy who was living with his father's wife, with his stepmother, and uh, that kind of sexual immorality that Paul confronts in 1 Corinthians 5. But there are a couple of things that I think uh, make it that that would not be the letter we're talking about. One of them is Paul uh, describes having written a very harsh letter, a very difficult letter, a very painful letter. 1 Corinthians doesn't read like that kind of a letter. So I don't think that's the letter he's referring to. Uh, also, we have this issue that there's a second visit in between that is mentioned as right before writing 2 Corinthians, and that visit seems to be the big issue that he's talking about. So all of that leads me to think we're not talking about the guy in 1 Corinthians 5. Something else happened. Uh, some kind of sin that Paul made a quick visit, confronted, and apparently it didn't go well. It seems Paul describes that this offending person also seems to have offended Paul some way. Uh, perhaps he insulted Paul or was disrespectful to Paul. And apparently it was not resolved satisfactorily that Paul left Corinth and the issue had not been f solved and he goes back to Ephesus, and from Ephesus, apparently, he writes a, a letter, and he describes it as a painful letter, uh, a very difficult letter that he wrote in agony. We're going to read about that in today's passage. And uh, it, with tears, he writes this harsh letter, this painful letter to the church, and basically, Paul, apparently, in this letter, is insisting on calling the church to deal with this problem of sin. And uh, he sends it off with Titus. Titus goes off to do this. Now, in the meantime, there's a guy in Ephesus where Paul is ministering named Demetrius. And he's involved in the Silversmiths Guild. And he realizes that the spread of the gospel in Ephesus has meant a decline in business for them because they made silver idols of Artemis, the goddess, the patron goddess of Ephesus. And this, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People flocked to Ephesus just to visit this temple and to worship in the temple of Artemis. And they're selling these idols and they've seen their sales go down because the gospel is turning people away from idolatry. So he convinces the whole guild of silversmiths, your livelihoods are in danger because of Paul. More broadly, he convinces the whole city that Paul and his kind are here to disrespect the very icon of the city itself. It's like somebody burning the American flag. That's the kind of rallying cry. Uh, and they spend two hours chanting, great as Artemis of the Ephesians in the public square. They're so riled up and it's, it's a huge instance of mob violence. Possibly this is what Paul is referring to this moment that he was so overwhelmed that he despaired of living itself. But it's a tremendously dangerous moment and God uh, intervenes so that the moment is diffused without loss of life. And it's after that that Paul heads out to return to Corinth. And it must have been the time of year where it was not safe to sail, so he's going by land up north to Troas. Um, and all the while he's thinking, I wonder what the Corinthian church did with that letter I sent. Because Titus hasn't showed up. It's been months Titus hasn't showed up. Finally, he's in Troas. He, he doesn't stop. He goes on, keeps going north to Macedonia. He's going to make his way down on the other side. And in Macedonia, he finally meets up with Titus. And oh, the relief. 
Titus tells them that the church received his harsh letter and that they dealt with the sin, the sinner has repented, and it's been restored. The only thing is some people are saying, why didn't Paul come and visit? Well, he talks about how much he loves us, and this is a big issue, and he left, and he sent this letter, but why didn't he come? We expected him to come and help us resolve all of this more quickly. Maybe and maybe he's just not that much concerned about us. Maybe he doesn't love us as much as we thought he did. What's the reason for his uh, taking so long to get here? I think, as best we can tell, that's the background of Paul in Macedonia sitting down to write this letter. After he's finally reunited with Titus, has heard the report, and is trying to say a couple of things, convince the church, guys, I do love you dearly. And we're going to talk a lot about that in today's passage. And uh, he's... uh, Uh, also uh, just explaining why he hasn't been there sooner and uh, also at the same time so relieved that his harsh letter was effective and and succeeded in the church dealing with this problem. So that at least least I think is, is a reasonable reconstruction of what might have gone on uh, in the background of the words we're about to read. So let's start in chapter 1 verse 23. But I call God as witness on my soul that it was to spare you that I have not yet come to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. Rather, we are fellow workers for your joy, for you have stood firm in the faith. Paul is trying to convince them, we've already seen it in last week's passage, that he loves them. That his not coming sooner is not about him not wanting to be with them. Him being offended and wounded and doesn't want to be there because they've mistreated him. That's not it at all. In fact, he calls God to bear witness against his very soul. I mean, he is, this is a, a very serious kind of oath that he's uh, invoking upon himself. May God strike me dead is kind of the sense of it. I call God as witness against my very soul that the reason I didn't go to you sooner was that I wanted to spare you pain. That last visit I had with you guys, it tore me up. And I wasn't about to jump back into the fray. And perhaps some people in Corinth are suggesting that Paul loves the fray. Paul loves to be combative and to be fighting other people and to be offering better arguments and besting his opponents and and crushing them in front of others, that he kind of thrives on conflict, and that is not Paul's heart. And he calls God his witness on his soul. The only reason I didn't jump right back in to this fight in the church is that I am done hurting you guys. I can't take it. <coughs> and perhaps the reaction of some to this harsh letter of Paul's has been to say, yeah, well, Paul figures he founded the church, so he's king of the church, and he's lording it over us, and he's telling us what to do and how we need to deal with everything because he thinks he owns the church. And Paul says that's not at all what's going on. We're not your kings. We're not your overlords. I'm not the head of the church. I want you to notice Paul in all of his letters never describes himself or any other human being as the head of the church. Many churches mistakenly use that kind of language to talk about their pastoral leadership. Pastors are not the head of the church. 
Only Christ is the head of the church. What is Paul to the Corinthians? This is a word Paul loves. He uses it a lot. Soon ergeis. Soon is the preposition with or together with. And ergos is work. In other words, I am the guy that's working right alongside you. I am a co-laborer with you. I am a fellow worker. I'm not the overlord. I'm not the guy in charge. I am another servant that is in the trenches with you doing the work of the kingdom. That is the truth of any genuine Christian ministry. And Christian leaders who don't understand that don't understand what it means to be in Christ and in his kingdom and in his church work. Paul understood it. I'm not here to lord it over your faith. We are fellow workers in this. I am one more servant of Christ in his kingdom alongside all of you. And everything I'm doing is in service to Christ and you. Just as everything you're doing is in service to Christ and me. And the whole point of this is not to impose my will, not to feed my ego. The whole objective of all of this painful stuff we've been through together is your ultimate joy. Paul didn't want to do any of this. Paul didn't relish the thought of causing pain. But he knew that it was the only way to get to the kind of joy that had to be behind it. That sin does nothing but destroy and contaminate and poison. And unless you deal with it, there is no joy at the end of it. But that's all he was after. It wasn't an ego trip. He wasn't trying to build some personal empire. He just wanted their joy. And what does Paul count as this joy? That they have stood firm in the faith that they have stood firm in their commitment to, obedience to Christ. They have stayed firm in that trust in him. Let's keep on in chapter 2. For I determined this within myself, not to come to you again in grief. For if I grieve you again, who is the one to make me glad but the one who is being grieved because of me? And I wrote this same thing so that when I came, I would not have grief from those from whom I need to receive joy. Being confident about you all that my joy is the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart through many tears, not so that you would be grieved, but so that you would know the love which I have especially for you. I love 2 Corinthians. It's like Paul bears his heart. There's no pretense in this letter. It's raw and honest to the point of being embarrassing sometimes. It's just a heart laid open, and I think it's the, the anguish he's coming out of. He has found himself pushed beyond his limits, and he is broken and bleeding and coming out of a, a horrible trial and coming through this, and he's, he's lucky to still be here standing, and it's from that position of absolute brokenness that Paul writes this letter. 
And he says, guys, let me just tell you my thought process. You're complaining that I didn't come to visit sooner, all this. Here's, I made up my mind. I'm not doing that again. That last visit I had and and the pain I felt compelled to bring on the congregation because we had to confront this. Um, That letter I wrote, I'm done bringing grief. I'm done hurting you. My heart can't take it. And he says, you know, I need you. He's talked in chapter one about this, how he felt so utterly overwhelmed beyond his strength so that he despaired of living itself. And he says, it's your prayers. It's your prayers that have led to me coming through this. Praise God. You guys... Your love and your prayers on my behalf have sustained me through this dark moment. So I need you. And if I'm just causing grief to the ones who I need to bring me joy, how is that ever going to work out? I can't just keep dishing out hurt. And he describes the process of writing that painful letter. Much affliction, anguish of heart through many tears. That letter, now lost to us, was drenched in tears. Paul wasn't gleefully. It wasn't that things didn't go well and he was offended and he went back and he wrote a spiteful letter because he was hurt. That wasn't what was going on in that harsh letter. It pained Paul deeply to write them and to forcefully tell them you've got to confront this you cannot sweep it under the rug you cannot ignore it sin destroys it festers it poisons you cannot allow this And Paul says that uh, he wrote with the intent that things would be restored so that he doesn't have to come and cause any more grief to those from whom he needs to receive joy. And he even parenthetically adds there, I'm confident about all of you that my joy is the joy of all of you. God has so bound our hearts together that your grief tears me up. And that my joy causes you to rejoice because we are in this together. God has so bound our hearts together in this kingdom work we are doing that we share joys and griefs together. And I can't just dish out hurt to you and be unaffected by it. My joy is tied up in you. So this caricature of Paul as the the stern authoritarian who just likes to throw his weight around. That is just not what is going on. To the point that he says, I'm done. I've made up my mind. I am not coming to you again to do that. Verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief... It is not me he has grieved, but in a way, not to put it too harshly, all of you. Now Paul turns his attention to the issue at hand, this person who's 
involved in some kind of sin and who has in some way perhaps offended Paul. And Paul says, it's not about me and this guy having some kind of beef. If he's caused grief, it's not just me, and, and I hope I'm not, I'm not being too dramatic about this, but what he's been doing has affected the whole church. His grief has hit all of us. It's not just some spat between the two of us. Now, apparently, from Titus's report, Paul knows that this person has repented, has recognized his sin and repented. So what does Paul suggest they do with this guy now that he won the day? Now that the church has agreed with Paul about this and confronted the sinner about his sin, what does Paul suggest? This is where some leaders would say, okay, kick him out of the church, he's a troublemaker. We don't need that kind of grief in the life of the church. Let's get rid of him. That's not at all what Paul says. For such a one, this punishment from the majority is sufficient. So apparently, you have this individual who has been in sin, the majority being the rest of the church, and they have confronted his sin, and uh, there's been an unwillingness to tolerate him to continue in that sin. This punishment from the majority, Paul says, is sufficient. So that you should, on the contrary, forgive and comfort him, lest such a person should somehow be swallowed up by excessive grief. So I exhort you to confirm your love to him. There are two things the church needed to do in obedience to Christ. The first was to confront the sin. The temptation apparently was to ignore it. It's not a problem. You want to do it, do it. Have your way and that's, that's it. Uh, Paul knew that that wasn't acceptable. We as Christians have to hold each other to the same standard of obedience to Christ. And when sin is present, we need to confront it. Now, not to fall into this uh, constant finger wagging, but we cannot ever endorse sin. We can't. We can't give the church's stamp of approval to any sin. No matter how small you think it is or how insignificant or how reasonable it seems to you, it's, if God says, don't do it, we have to say, you know, I might have done it, but I'm not going to say it was right. Sin is wrong, and it is something we are moving away from, not trying to validate and accommodate. But that's only the first step. What do you do when you confront sin and the sinner repents? Some churches have a whole program of punishment before restitution is considered paid and a person can be restored to full church membership participation. That's not at all what Paul suggests. The second half of obedience to Christ is when the sinner repents, you forgive. When the sinner repents, you comfort the sinner. You don't grind them into the dust. You don't drive them to despair. You don't convince them that they're worthless. In fact, he says, I want you, I exhort you, 
I am calling you to a higher level of activity. I want you to confirm your love to him. That doesn't mean, he doesn't just say love him. He says confirm it. In other words, be so deliberate and explicit about loving this sinner who has repented that he cannot miss the fact that you love him. That he has tangible, irrefutable evidence that you love him. It's confirmed. I also wrote for this reason, to know your testing whether you are obedient in everything. Now some might read that and say, aha, see, Paul the despot. His hope in writing that harsh letter was to make some ridiculous extreme demand of the church and see if they'll all jump when he says jump. If they will obey him in everything. That is not at all what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about them obeying him. He's talking about them obeying Christ. And this is the danger that Paul saw in the church. There is this sin. The church is unwilling to confront it. And here's what the churches, the calculation churches make when this begins to happen. Am I going to continue obeying Christ in everything? Or am I going to start inserting my own criteria and saying, well, these sins are no longer sins because I've decided I don't want them to be sins. I've decided that this doesn't count as sin. I don't care what Jesus says about it. He's wrong. So I will submit to Christ in a lot of stuff, but these particular sins I'm grandfathering in. Paul says, I confronted this harshly in this letter, and it was a test to see if you guys are going to obey Christ in everything, even when it seems to you that he's wrong. Are you going to obey Christ? Paul binds himself to them, and what he's asking them to do, he has committed himself up front to do. To whom you forgive anything, I do as well. And as for me, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did so because of you in the presence of Christ, literally in the Greek, before the face of Christ. That's the Greek idiom for being in the presence of someone. So that we should not be outwitted by the adversary or Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So there are these two points of obedience when the church deals with sin. One is to confront the sin, not accommodate it. But the other is to rehabilitate the sinner to restore that person to freedom from sin. In some churches, uh, there's not that rehabilitation. There's just the confrontation. There's just the condemnation. And people walk around with signs talking about who God hates. And there's no love confirmed. There's no forgiveness, no comfort. There's just the bare condemnation and the finger wagging. Consider how crafty our enemy is. Here's his initial attempt. I'm going to sneak sin into the life of the church. 
I'm going to get somebody involved in a kind of sin that is not overt enough or clear enough that the rest of the church is going to recognize that it's a problem and I'm going to let it sit there and hopefully I'll get the church to buy into it and, and we can do the whole frog in the boiling water, you know. You just raise the temperature slowly enough and before you know it, you've killed the frog and he never knew it was happening. I'll do that. I'll sow sin into the life of the church. The church will not confront it and it'll be allowed to fester and to poison and to destroy the church from within. Satan has destroyed many congregations that way. Suppose that doesn't work. That he gets this uh, sleeper sin into the life of the church but the church is listening to Christ and the church recognizes the problem and confronts it. What does Satan do then? Does he say, oh well, I guess they won, I'll go find another church to try to do stuff in. No, he's constantly trying to twist things to the evil, to the bad. So what does he do at that point? Well then he says, okay, well let me really fire up the people who are confronting the sinner. Let me fill them with righteous indignation. Let me fill them with uh, not just righteous indignation, let me fill them with self-righteous indignation so that they are very happy to look for sin and root it out and confront it and that's all they want to do. And then I can insert a different sin in the life of the church. Let's call spiritual pride the new sin where you think you are the arbiter, you think you stand in the place of Christ to pass judgment on everybody around you. And you look down your nose at the sinner and there's no compassion and there's no attempt to restore, there is simply the condemnation. That's a second way Satan tries to destroy the church and some churches have fallen into that where it, it reaches a point where you have witch hunts and you have uh, enforcers who are looking around to see how they can uh, identify and destroy sinners. And in churches like that, before long, there's no way to love God. You're too scared of the enforcers. You're too scared of the Pharisees and the finger wagging. And what will they say about me? So that's Satan's backup plan to destroy a church. Paul says we have to obey Christ all the way through to redemptive love. If we stop anywhere before we get there, Satan's gonna get the upper hand. We confront sin with the only purpose of helping the sinner discover the joy that's on the other side of repentance and turning away from it. <clears throat> and all we want is to love them. That's our only end goal. Some churches get church discipline wrong. What do you do when a sinner recognizes their sin and repents? What does Jesus do with us? Is there a period of penance before he will forgive? He forgives, comforts, and confirms his love immediately. In some churches, when you sin, there's a period of punishment. 
some kind of form of public humiliation. Maybe you're forced to sit on the back row for the next two months. You've already repented, but you've still got to pay. That is absolutely unbiblical. The church's responsibility when there's repentance is immediately to shift from confrontation to restoration. Some people love the fight too much. Paul says, let's not be idiots. Let's not let Satan get yet another one over on us. Let's be wise. Let's love deeply, profoundly, and with the very wisdom of God Almighty. Let's beat him at every turn. Final thing Paul wants to say about this, verse 12. But when I came into Troas for Christ's gospel, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because my brother Titus had not found me. Instead, having bid them farewell, I went on to Macedonia. Does that strike you as a very odd thing to see Paul saying? I thought if God opens a door, that means you've got to stay and do it. Paul didn't. And he's just flat out being honest. Guys, let me, let me convey to you just how deeply I love you. I was traveling, I got up to Troas, and I do what I always do. I'm involved in the gospel work, and God opens the door. I, I know I can stick around here, and there are people to serve, and they're open to receive the message. I, there's an opportunity in the Lord here to do good work. But Paul says, my heart wouldn't let me stop and do that. There was no rest in my spirit. And what made Paul restless in that moment when he was in Troas? What made him restless was he hasn't heard a word from Corinth. His last visit was painful and he wrote this horrible letter. And he doesn't know how they received it. Have, has it done what his tears hoped it would do? Have, have they finally dealt with this redemptively? Or maybe they've just said, no, I'm done. Paul is always harshing us and he's always making, making us feel down. Let's just be done with Paul and this, we're, this is the kind of church we're gonna be and we're not gonna deal with this and Paul just butt out. Maybe he's out of it. He doesn't know. It's been months and Titus has not showed up. Because of that, when he's in Troas, he can't stop. He, he's, I'm sorry. Even though I could stick around and do fruitful ministry here, I've got to know what's going on. And he moves on and keeps going to Macedonia. And it's in Macedonia that he finally encounters Titus and receives the wonderful news that the church did receive his letter well. There are some grumblings, but the, the matter has been dealt with. I think there's something profound about that. You see, the kingdom of God boils down to relationships. Your participation in God's kingdom begins with one, rest, one relationship being restored. 
You recognize that you are at war with your creator, that he came to earth and gave his life on the cross to pay for all your sins so that you could be restored to fellowship with him and forgiven all your sins and you come to faith in him and you begin the relationship that will govern the rest of your eternity. You are restored to a relationship with your creator, God. What does God do immediately? He immediately starts teaching you not only how to love him, but how to love everybody else. The work of the kingdom is relationship work. That's the only kind of work there is. We are building, we are forging relationships for eternity. And that, that's the reality of what Paul has been experiencing. So why could he not stay at Troas? Because his heart at this point was so wrapped up in the lives and hearts of the Corinthian believers, he had no rest. He had to know. And he... He passed up an opportunity for ministry because his heart would not let him stop there. Some people would look at that and say, Paul was doing the wrong thing. He was disobeying Christ. I don't think that's it at all. I think Paul is getting to the roots of what the gospel is all about. You see, every time we sit down and pray together, the Holy Spirit is binding our hearts together. Every time we invite each other to our homes and eat a meal together, God is tying our hearts together. Every time we gather and worship together, every time we are here on a Sunday morning and we hug each other, God is binding our hearts and lives together, and that is the kingdom of God. And that is the work of the kingdom of God. And that takes precedence over strategies and plans and programs. Because that's what the whole kingdom is about. Sometimes we neglect the relationships of the kingdom because we're too busy planning the work of the kingdom. How ironic is that? Paul has reached the point in his ministry where he understands that these relationships trump plans and opportunities and stratagems for gospel outreach. Our hearts are bound in Christ. That is kingdom work. It's a sad adage. I've heard it often spoken in jest that ministry would be great if it weren't for all the people, right? Paul reminds us that loving one another in Christ is extremely costly. We're gonna find ourselves compelled to confront sin that sometimes we would rather ignore. Sometimes we'll find ourselves forced to obey the demands of love when these involve painful ver words and painful visits. And kingdom living requires the maturity to confront sin without bruising or destroying sinners. 
That's a fine line to walk. To confront sin with love and forgiveness and comfort and encouragement. Through it all, God is binding our hearts together in love. And we're gonna find the deeper we go in Christ, the deeper we go into each other's hearts and lives. Soon, these relationships become the driving force in our lives and our plans and strategies will begin to take a back seat to the relationships we are forging for eternity. That is the kingdom. We're gonna sing a song. I believe God's word confronts us and calls us to perfect obedience. The obedience of faith is the phrase Paul uses. I'm not sure exactly what God might have been calling you to this morning, but if there is some point in your heart or life where you are not in that obedience to him, maybe you're not dealing with sin because it's too painful, or maybe you're dealing with with the sin but you're not loving, Uh, maybe you don't even know Christ. And you need to take that first step of surrendering your heart and life to him to begin this relationship. Wherever you are this morning, (coughs) God is calling. This is your time to do something tangible. We're gonna stand, let's all stand, and we'll have some people that are gonna be here at the front on either side. As we're singing this song, whatever God's calling you to, come forward, take the hand of one of the people here at the front, just share with them briefly what God has laid on your heart and let them encourage you and love you and comfort and pray for you. And let's turn from sin redemptively together. Come while we sing.